You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Scotland, where the British general election next month is expected to overturn decades of dominance by the Labour Party. But we begin with the plight of 18,000 people, including 3,500 children, who are trapped in a Palestinian refugee camp at Yarmouk on the outskirts of the Syrian capital Damascus. The camp has been besieged for two years by forces loyal to Syria's President Bashar al-Assad, but since last week it's been almost totally under the control of the so-called Islamic State, or ISIS. There are reports of beheadings and other atrocities by ISIS fighters on the ground, while from the air the camp faces bombing raids by the Syrian Air Force. The civilian population has no food, no water, a dwindling supply of medicine, and no way out. I'm joined now on the line by Chris Gunnis of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. Chris, can you describe to me the situation in Yarmouk? The situation in Yarmouk is beyond inhumane, and frankly, we are facing the potential slaughter of the innocents with 3,500 children in the camp at immediate risk of life-threatening dangers, being killed, being maimed, being seriously injured, because the fighting is now mingling amidst the civilian population, 18,000 civilians there. This was already a community in which women were dying of child, in childbirth because of a lack of medicines, and children were dying of malnutrition. That is why we are calling for immediate uh, cessation of hostilities and for humanitarian uh, access. We briefed the Security Council last night, and we called on the members the powerful members to bring pressures to bear, religious, economic, financial, diplomatic, political, whatever, on the parties to make sure that there can be a pause and that civilians are allowed to leave. How can that pressure be brought to bear on the so-called Islamic State? Well, who pays for their guns? Because those are the people. You know, whoever gives them the guns and the knives and the whatever they're using... Um, those are the people that we need to bring, uh, that need to bring influence. They know who they are. I mean, who are, who are funding these groups? It's not beyond the wit of man to work that out. And pressures have to be brought to bear, financial, religious, spiritual, diplomatic, political. It doesn't matter. But frankly, it's an absolute humanitarian imperative because, I say, we are facing a slaughter of the innocents. There are 3,500 children in that camp, and there is a civil war raging around them. It is an affront to the civilized world that, that the diplomats and politicians can stand by and watch this horrendous spectacle. There has to be action, and there has to be action swiftly. And in practical terms, uh, you're speaking about a kind of a safe passage corridor to allow people to get out? Yes, I mean, we had... I was tending to 94 people two days ago who escaped early in the morning after a night of very intense fighting. So it is possible to evacuate 94 people, and if it's possible to evacuate before, you can evacuate 194 and many, many more. So pressures have to be brought to bear so there is a cessation of hostilities and a, a pause so that people can be evacuated. Obviously, the, the people who are mainly responsible for, the, for what's happening right now in Yarmouk and more generally in the Syrian civil war are the parties directly involved. What exactly, though, would you say is the responsibility of the international community in this conflict? To uphold the UN Charter, to uphold international law obligations to protect civilians in times of war. They've all signed up to these treaties. They've all signed up to the conventions on protecting civilians. They've committed to it. It's not like we're begging them to do something they've never signed up to. They have signed up to the protection of civilians in time of war. 
and they now have to step up to the plate and live up to those obligations. Through military means, by sending in military protection for uh, for uh, humanitarian aid, is that what you're talking about? Well, look, UNRWA, UNRWA is a peaceful humanitarian organisation, so I'm not going to um, advocate for military force. Um, but, you know, Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, if you read it, um, does allow for collective security. Now, I'm not proposing... I'm not telling the Security Council what it needs to do. I'm not saying that there should be collective security action. All I'm saying is that there has to be effective action so that the parties on the ground live up to their obligations under international humanitarian law to respect civilians. Chris Gunners, thank you very much for joining us. I'm joined now from Nicosia by the Irish Times Middle East analyst, Michael Jansen. Michael, you have reported from Yarmouk refugee camp some years ago. Can you tell me something about what that camp is, who's there, and how long it's been there? Well, the camp itself has been there since 1957. It was uh, created by the United Nations Relief and Works Agency because many Palestinians had settled uh, in the area of Damascus. And so they wanted to bring them together so that they could provide them with services and uh, and uh, food and education and so on. Uh, the problem with Yarmouk is that it's not only a Palestinian camp. It is a, it is a neighborhood. It's a city on the edge of Damascus. And it had, before the conflict, about a million inhabitants, 160,000 of them being Palestinians, some on UNRWA's uh, roles, so they received some kind of services or help and the rest not on UNRWA's roles because they were middle class and had got off the roles. Uh, the camp has two main roads. One is called Yarmouk Street, and that is the, which sort of bisects the area, and the other is called Palestine Street. And uh, the actual majority of people who live in the area or have lived in the area are Syrians. Um, although there has always been a sprinkling of other Somalis and Sudanese and so on. The thing about Yarmouk is that uh, in December 2012, uh, the camp was handed over to uh, some uh, anti-government forces by rebel units of a Palestinian group which had been under Syrian control called the Popular Front General Command. And there was a lot of fighting in the camp. And the majority of people left the camp on or about the 17th of December 2012, many of them walking without any of their household items or clothing or anything else. Um, now, the camp has retained a, pro, uh, a population of about 18,000 since then. And these people have been put under huge pressure by uh, being surrounded by anti-government forces uh, who are themselves ringed by government troops. And there are any number of different groups inside the camp also fighting for dominance. Uh, one of the groups was the, the Nusra Front, which actually introduced the Islamic State fighters into the camp last week. And Nusra Front had been there ever since uh, December 2012. It was one of the leading groups. 
The problem is also that there are competing factions with Nusra and with the Islamic State, including the Saudi-backed um, Islamic Army and other groups. So it's very difficult to get a handle on any of them to make them stop firing. So well, that that's actually is, is one of the the crucial points that uh, Chris Gunnis raised, where uh, when he was suggesting that some pressure needs to be brought to bear on uh, both the uh, Syrian government, which is bombarding the, uh, the the camp from outside and from the air, but also on these fighters, including the so-called Islamic State. How can you actually bring pressure to bear? Chris Gunnis was suggesting that uh, it, it, it really ought to go through the sources of funding and the sources of arming of these groups. But who actually uh, do you need to go to to try to get pressure uh, uh, exerted on these groups? Well, this is the problem. The Security Council has passed a resolution demanding that uh, countries whose citizens or whose governments are uh, aiding these groups should put pressure on them. But this doesn't work because these countries don't do it. And uh, this what is countries one of are the we problems. talking about, Michael? We're talking about Saudi Arabia, Qatar, to a certain extent, the United Arab Emirates, whose citizens are have been providing aid to some of these groups, and um, to private individuals living around the world. Uh, the problem is that nobody puts any pressure on these people to stop funding these groups. Now, Islamic State uh, has become actually self-funding uh, by doing uh, uh, business with Turkey uh, and also by uh, kidnapping people and holding them for ransom and robbing uh, archaeological sites and also siphoning oil from Syria's oil wells and from Iraq's oil wells as well. So uh, the Islamic State is one group which is rather independent, whereas these other groups are not. And where the Syrian government is concerned, uh, one of the interesting things about this is, of course, that we had been hearing that the Islamic State was on the back foot, certainly in Iraq, and also that uh, the opposition to uh, Assad's regime was starting to, uh, it was fracturing even more than it had before. And yet uh, it seems that uh, President Assad and his regime can't quite win this civil war. Well, it's very difficult for them to win the civil war because there are so many different groups that it has to tackle. Um, I, when I was in Damascus last month, the situation in Yarmouk was actually better than, than it had been for some time. And UNRWA was getting food in, and the commissioner general of UNRWA actually went and visited uh, the distribution point, which is on Palestine Street in Yarmouk along with the local director. Um, and uh, I also spoke to people in UNRWA who said that three of the camps in the vicinity of Yarmouk or south of Damascus were also going to be opened for Palestinians to go back and, and live in their homes and also to receive aid from UNRWA back when they get back home. Now, I, I assume that this has been put on, put on hold because uh, of what is happening in Yarmouk. Uh, can I ask you, Michael, just briefly about the, uh, the continuing uh, lack of progress in terms of an internationally negotiated 
peace settlement in Syria. There is, as we speak, there's a meeting going on in Moscow, but one of the main opposition forces that's backed by the Western powers is not attending that conference because they say that they don't want to attend a conference unless it's quite clear that it's going to lead to the removal of President Assad. And last year in Geneva, the talks broke down partly because of this particular condition on the part of some of the rebel groups that Assad must go. How do you how do we get out of this uh, stalemate and this impasse where these talks are concerned? Well, when I was in Damascus, I did speak to some opposition people who said that at least uh, the uh, Western-backed uh, coalition had accepted the, uh, the possibility that Assad would remain during the transition period and would be leaving after the transition period. So that for them was a positive development. Uh, the, the opposition group, the main local or domestic opposition group, which is attending the talks, has unfortunately split into two factions. And another domestic opposition group called the Building the Syrian State is not attending the talks because its leader has been stopped from traveling abroad by the government. Um, this man had been arrested last uh, year and held in prison for thir three months. And he uh, did get out of prison actually just before I was in Damascus, and I saw him briefly. Uh, he hadn't been mistreated or anything, just held. But he wasn't allowed, so that faction didn't go. Now, the, in the previous talks in Moscow, many of the factions did send people as independents, and they did come up with some progress because uh, they, they weren't tied down by external factors. I'm not certain how many people have gone as independents to this particular group, uh, meeting in Moscow at the present time. The government uh, has put its eggs in the Moscow basket, as it were, in the hope that some kind of a deal can be uh, reached. But the point is the government is now, um, when, I, when I was in Damascus, the government was feeling in, in strong position. But with what is happening in Yarmouk, that position has been weakened. And there also may be a large number of fighters who have been kicked out of Tikrit by the Iraqi army and the Iraqi militias, who have gone back across the border into Syria and are reinforcing Islamic State positions in Syria, which would be very bad news for Syria. Michael Jansen, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Scotland's referendum on independence last year ended in defeat for the Yes side, which was led by the Scottish National Party. But since then, the Nationalists have seen their membership multiply and their support shoot up in the polls. Most polls now suggest that the SNP could win more than 40 out of Scotland's 59 seats at Westminster in next month's general election. Such a result would be a disaster for Labour, which was the dominant political force in Scotland for decades and which opposed independence in the referendum. Indeed, the result in Scotland could determine whether Labour can form the next government at Westminster. For the latest on the battle in Scotland, I'm joined now from Glasgow by our London editor, Mark Hennessy. Mark, those polls showing the SNP way ahead, they're pretty solid, aren't they? 
They have, and if anything, they, it looks like they're going to get even a little stronger over the next week or two. And clearly, when you talk to people in Scottish Labour, there is a degree of almost fatalism now being shown by many of them uh, who believe that, certainly in the case of the Glasgow constituencies, the seven uh, constituencies in the city, that at least five of those are gone and perhaps more. And if you look across the central belt of Scotland, that line between Glasgow and Edinburgh, there are dozens of seats where in times past the Labour vote uh, was weighed rather than counted, where Labour candidates were automatically put by bookmakers at 500 to 1 on chances. They didn't even take money on, on races. Those uh, constituencies are now competitive. And what the SNP has managed to do uh, is effectively take all of the 45% vote uh, uh, last year for independence and effectively attach that uh, solely and singularly to their own political brand. And given the first-past-the-post uh, system, uh, that 45%, if they can corral that and keep it corralled between now and May 7, will deliver a very significant number of seats to them when the, the votes are counted. So if Labour wants to try to limit the damage, and if you were to look at it on the bright side from Labour's point of view, uh, you would say that uh, one-third of Labour's supporters voted yes in the referendum last year and those are the people that uh, Labour needs to try to persuade back or at least a portion of them. How many of them do they need to attract back to themselves? Well, it, it depends which constituencies you're looking for because they're not absolutely all identical. In some places, Labour had a 15 to 20 to 25,000 vote majority in some constituencies. Now those seats are running level pegging or in some places the SNP are ahead. What the Labour needs to do in places like that is actually to pull back what might appear to be a relatively small number of votes, five, seven, eight percent of the vote, which would actually deliver the seat to them, not with the majorities of old, but it would get them over the line. And that is as good as it gets. The, the difficulty they have in places like uh, uh, the Glasgow, for instance, is that was what was previously a strong uh, and predictable Labour vote has simply migrated across uh, completely to uh, the SNP. What uh, Labour are hoping for in constituencies where there is still uh, a significant element of Tory support, Conservative support or Liberal Democrat support, although that has waned very sharply in recent times, that people like them can be persuaded on this occasion to vote tactically for Labour, not because they like Labour, but because they like the SNP less. And, uh, and if Labour is trying to make an argument against the SNP, the argument that it has sought to make traditionally is that a vote, a vote for the SNP is going to put David Cameron back into power. Is that uh, working as an argument in Scotland? Not so far. I mean, it has always been a case in the last 10 years that the SNP have become more and more relevant in Holyrood elections because the voters uh, came to the conclusion that they were going to be a powerful party in Holyrood, that they would represent the political interests that the voters wanted to see represented. But those same people then went off and voted for Labour in House of Commons elections because they never saw the SNP as being particularly relevant in Westminster. And if you look at the current, uh, the outgoing state of uh, the Westminster Party, uh, the SNP have just six MPs there. What has changed is that now people are in Scotland are beginning to see and beginning to accept that 
the uh, the SNP will be a very powerful voice in, in Scotland and that they can rep- in Westminster and that they can represent uh, Scottish interests and therefore the whole narrative that the SNP are able to put forward to people is that a vote for them will not be wasted that it will deliver a powerful voice in Westminster and as of now. Uh, that is an argument that is being very largely accepted by the Scottish voters. Now, Nicola Sturgeon, the uh, the leader of the Scottish National Party, uh, impressed an awful lot of people last week in this seven-way uh, leaders' debate that was broadcast uh, on independent television. Uh, but then she got into a spot of uh, hot water over the weekend about what she did or didn't say to the French ambassador. Can you explain what was going on there? Well, dealing with that first, uh, the Daily Telegraph, uh, which has a very strong operation in Scotland, a very pro-union uh, stance uh, that it takes here, and it's, it's quite activist in its attitudes, uh, they got a copy of a memo that was uh, produced within the Scotland office, and that memo recorded a conversation that took place between a Scottish office official and a French diplomat uh, in Edinburgh, the Consul General in Edinburgh. And in that memo, the uh, French diplomat was recorded as saying that he uh, had attended a meeting with the French ambassador and uh, Scottish First Minister in February, and during that meeting that she had uh, expressed, the Sturgeon had expressed her doubts uh, about Ed Miliband's fitness to be in office in number 10, and that she had expressed a uh, preference to see the Tories in power. Now, that uh, was then uh, published uh, late on Friday night by the Daily Telegraph. They did not go and speak with uh, Nicola Sturgeon in advance of publication. And the memo did contain a very strong caveat in that the official who recorded the conversation said, I don't really believe this. I don't think that uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon would have been so loose in her conversation with diplomats of any country that she would have said something like this. So that then has fed uh, a narrative in Scotland of dirty tricks by Whitehall and people believing that the memo was false and uh, and all of the rest of it. So it has kind of fed that, that atmosphere that does exist very strongly in Scotland. Um, however, the memo was certainly... Uh, nobody has questioned, A, the existence of the memo, and nobody is questioning the uh, version of events uh, in the memo that at least it is an accurate version of events as understood by the civil servant who wrote the note, uh, where much of the controversy has uh, occurred is how this memo got into the public ether and how it was spun by the Daily Telegraph. Now, as of now, it is largely worked out to the SNP's favour and Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, the majority of Scots would seem to accept that it was uh, a degree of dirty tricks on the part of people in London. And uh, it, it has fed that the narrative that the SNP is quite comfortable in, in expressing and usually rather successful in spreading. And she says that she didn't say this to the French ambassador and the French ambassador said that she didn't say it either. However... People do think that she might actually think it, that she, that really the, the Scottish nationalists would yeah, well, prefer to have uh, exactly. David Cameron in power. Exactly. I mean, that, that is the kind of contradiction here, that if she didn't say it, people largely accept that she didn't say it at the meeting at which she is said to have said it. But a lot of people in Scotland would believe that that's actually what she thinks. Now, because if you have Tories in power 
in uh, London, uh, you will have continuing welfare cuts. You will have a, a series of continuing issues that will annoy Scottish uh, public opinion. Um, they don't like the Tories anyway. So the idea of the Tories being in power in London, regardless of what the Tories were doing, would be enough to annoy uh, the majority of people in Scotland. And all of that would feed into uh, a situation where an independence referendum could be uh, uh, put by uh, the next uh, SNP government if they win the 2016 elections in Holyrood and that they could get independence within five years. That's one side of the argument. uh, Sturgeon says that's absolutely untrue, that she does not want to see uh, Cameron in power, that she will do everything possible to form progressive alliances in Westminster to ensure that he's not in power. And what that what she wants is a minority Labour government who is responsive to Scotland's needs on a vote-by-vote basis rather than entering into any coalition with them or not. The, the final judgment on the memo and the political significance of the memo cannot be made for several weeks. The question is whether in the final 48 hours, 72 hours of the campaign, a percentage of Scots can be made to think as to what are the real ambitions uh, of the SNP. And depending on what judgment they make as to what they think those judgments are, then that might uh, bring a small uh, percentage of a vote back onto the Labour side. Judging by what one sees on the ground in Scotland as of today, there's very little hope uh, or expectation that that will be the case. But the next few weeks may bring their own changes. And can I ask you just about one other uh, potential difference between this election and the referendum last year. The turnout for the referendum last year was enormous. It was over 80%, 85% or something. Uh, now, that's unlikely to happen in Scotland this time round. Is that is a smaller turnout uh, likely to benefit or uh, the SNP or not? Well, the, if you look at what's happened with their membership, um, they're, they're now at 103,000, which uh, uh, is uh, one over one in 50 of the Scottish population are now a member of their party, which is absolutely extraordinary. It's been an amazing success. And 3,000 members have joined since last uh, Thursday's TV debate. And there will be uh, more people flocking to the SNP flag between now and the polling day. Uh, you won't get 85%, that's clear, but you are going to get a, a figure in Scotland that will be significantly higher than anything that we see in any other part of the United Kingdom, uh, including Northern Ireland, which has always had a decent uh, voting record. They, they, sh- they would have won the referendum if they had got uh, plus 85% uh, uh, last time round, because it would have indicated that they were getting votes out of the really poor districts of places like Glasgow uh, that eventually didn't come out. Now, nevertheless, you know those, those voting figures uh, in Glasgow were still incredibly significant. Uh, the higher the, t- the voting turnout, you would have to assume, could be interpreted as uh, a vote for the SNP rather than a vote for Labour, because those people would have had many chances in the past to vote for Labour and they never bothered to come out before. Finally, Mark, uh, if we uh, cast our minds forward to uh, the days after the election, uh, what way will the Scottish nationalists go when it comes to uh, the formation of a government in Westminster? 
Well, it's interesting that what you see what's happening in London is that they're trying to portray the Scots as being the marauding picks who are coming from the north and prepared to lay waste to England. The Daily Mail and people like that have been running that campaign very, very strongly. That will be a much harder campaign to, to sustain, uh, given that people in Britain are in England. I had the opportunity, 7 million of them had the opportunity to see Nicola Sturgeon in last week's debate, and many people were impressed by what they saw. So the, the, uh, when it comes to uh, the numbers afterwards... It will depend on on what the uh, figures for the Tories and uh, Labour are. Uh, certainly, there's no constitutional rule that it has to be this way, but normally the party with the biggest number of seats gets first dibs at trying to form a government. If that is the Tories, they have fewer coalition options uh, than Labour. If it is Labour, then uh, the, uh, the SNP have made it clear that they're available for a price, but that price would have to be individually negotiated on each issue. They won't take up places in government. They won't. They will demand places in uh, Commons committees and, and whatnot, but they won't uh, demand any places at Cabinet. But they will demand a pound of flesh from, uh, uh, the, from a Labour government uh, at every turn. And we saw the first example of that today where... Uh, Sturgeon was making the point that Scotland has a an earlier debt rate because of ill health and a whole variety of, of, of reasons that are built into the Scottish society and that she doesn't accept that the UK pension age should increase or that if it is going to increase, then there have to be exemptions made for Scots because they die quickly, more, more, more earlier than people elsewhere in the United Kingdom. So you're going to see a continual series of examples like that where the SNP, if they get the opportunity, will wield power in Scotland's uh, interests, and that argument is one that is being understood by Scottish voters, and as of now, seems to be inclined to make very large numbers of them vote for the SNP. Mark Hennessy in Glasgow, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com, and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Robert Sullivan, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.